Well, I mean, like chaos in your pants is something that I think. Pop culture encompasses a lot of things, not just streaming. Hey, we're approaching the end of August, and this is Glop Culture. I'm John Podhoritz in New York with Rob Long on the eastern end of Long Island. Hi, Rob. Hi, John. How are you? I am well, and I believe in Washington, his ancestral, not ancestral, semi-ancestral home. Uh, No, I'm in Maine. I'm in Elliott, Maine. Oh, you're in Maine. So, I don't know. So, that's the ancestral home of uh, Billy Bigelow of Carousel. Jonah Goldberg. How are you, Jonah? I'm okay. I'm all right. Thank you for asking, John. You're, you're a very considerate guy. How are uh, you coping? He doesn't really mean it, Joan. I mean, it's not like he really cares. You just said anything. You just said, I'm radioactive. And he was so, so great to hear. So I learned this morning that, uh, or yesterday morning, that uh, Noah Rothman is off all week on the commentary podcast. So yes. I'm wondering, are you like just going into like random Starbucks and talking over people just to get, you know, to because you, 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 you miss it so much with Rothman gone? Yeah, well, you know, it's better than just standing in the middle of the street and speaking for an hour and a half into a microphone, Jonah. So I, I, I got, I got that, I got that going for me. Um, I like the idea that Noah Rothman is is not going to be speaking on the podcast now because he's on vacation. <laughs> like it's like great. It's, uh, I, I, it's I don't think that our listeners believe that <laughs> Noah will ask for airtime based on our email. I, um, I, uh, because based on email sent by to, from. Uh, uh, Johnny Podrenuts, like, like like when when Trump had that fake PR guy, he would yeah, to. John Barron, yeah, John yeah. Barron, right? Dear no, yeah, editors of commentary, yeah. I would like to commend yes, yours sincerely, Colonel Podrenuts, <laughs> U.S. Um, Army retired. Uh, so here's a bizarre transition because you're being funny about names. So uh, we uh, had the first episode of this Game of Thrones prequel, House of the Dragon. Uh, Ten million people watched it on Sunday night. And, uh, you know, there's like a character named Rhaenyra. And then there's a character named Rhaenys. Just just to make sure that you really can't remember who anybody is. Was it, this and character then named there's Rhaenys? Lord really? Rhaenys? There's, there's Blorley and, and Valerian and Demon. And, the, and then there is a guy who is the essentially the chancellor of the exchequer whose name is Lord Benbury. And it's like. Couldn't everybody just be named Lord Benbury? Like, why do we have to? Well, how am I supposed to remember that Rainus is the old one and Rhaenyra is the younger one? Like, I, I guess I I get it now, but like I, I you know it was very it's it's very annoying. Imagine was, I, I here's what I wanted to do. I want to do the third Game of Thrones, or maybe just an ancillary Game of Thrones series. It's just uh, the character Rainus in middle school. <laughs> just what what rain hey is that uh, i don't know who's that Uranus? you think that's you think you're joking no I'm but not, there I'm is not. there is middle school ip someone is trying to figure out how to make middle school ip out of game of thrones well you know, it's that, like that guy yeah. james why, Patterson. why stop now i mean why not just why not just, why not have everything be game of thrones let's live in game of thrones let's talk about nothing but game of thrones for the rest of our lives right. why not so James Patterson, you know, who is like the best-selling author in America now sure. and publishes like three books a year, 
that he doesn't even write anymore. He like doesn't outline and somebody else writes it and yeah. they co-write it and it's it and he's got all these rules. And like 15, 20 years ago, he sort of looked at the book market. He he's like a he's like a real estate mogul and he's like looking for, you know, uh, fallow land in strange places and stuff like that. And he just he just he said, There's gold here in like readers 10 to 12. <laughs> and he just started publishing dozens and dozens of books, funny books, right. mystery books, this, that. And he just like, he makes money hand over fist. So well, I don't know why we can't have just because just because there needs to be incest <laughs> and pornography. Why can't there be a no, tween I, Game of Thrones? I, that makes it all the more likely. In fact, um, <laughs> I, I think Jim Patterson was I mean, he just he didn't start as a novelist. Jim has a really good story because he. He was an advertising guy. He was creative director of J. Walter Thompson in the 80s. Incredibly, incredibly um, uh, successful, except for, um, I don't know how old you are, if you remember the Herb campaign and uh, the disastrous Burger King Herb campaign where they all had to, we're searching all over for Herb the nerd in America because he's the one who hasn't eaten a Whopper. Um, seriously, that was a giant campaign. Um, and he would write uh, every morning, like between like five and seven uh, and then go to work. Um, and, uh, you know, he wrote 12 books and th they were 11 of them were just the worst books ever written. And then then he figured it out. And then the 12th book was a bestseller. I hate uh, stories like that. Yeah. And then he used to I have hate those giant, people who yeah. write from five to seven and then go yeah. off to their that's, job. That's it where just where makes me feel bad about myself. Yeah. It's right. Like, well, you know, <laughs> like Paul Johnson gave a talk once on an NR cruise where they asked, you know, what is your writing day like? And it was like, I wake up from. You know, I wake up at 5.30 or whatever, and then from 6 to 10, <laughs> I write 3,000 words, and then I have lunch, and then I paint for two hours, and then I read, you know, it's like, and it's just like the discipline of being able to do oh, that every so single horrible. day. Yeah, I you know, know, people used to yeah. say that and say, like, like, but you know, then I'm done. Right? Then I'm then done. I have the I, rest done. of my day. <laughs> what are you talking yeah. about? Then you're done. My God. Yeah. So Trollope. Uh, Anthony Trollope, my my favorite writer, wrote this notorious autobiography that kind of ruined his reputation for 60 or 70 years because he basically said, I wrote for money. Here's how much I made from this book. Here's how much I made from that <laughs> book. And in the sort of romantic idea of the great writer, he seemed crass and materialistic. And so, you know, everybody in the literary world turned their noses up at him. And, it, and he really needed to sort of undergo a revival in the mid 20th century, which which he did. Um but you know one of one of the reasons i think people have always said it's because of the crass materialism stuff i think it's cuz he described how he wrote and every writer hated him as a result so he wrote <laughs> from 5am to 9am in the morning and he wrote 4000 words a day and if he finished a book in the middle of the 5 to 9 slot if he got to the end and he wrote the end he started the next one <laughs> and then he kicked off at nine. And him. so my view is every writer in the world read Tarab's autobiography and said, screw that guy. I hate that guy. Yeah. <laughs> screw that guy and his work ethic. Well, I mean, that's like every everybody who's not a writer. I went to, I went down to Costa Rica once with a friend of mine who is a lawyer who is a lawyer. And he wanted to write a novel. And so we went you know, went there for two weeks. He said, I'm really going to start on this novel. And I, of course, I'm a professional writer. So I was going to write a script. And we went down to Costa Rica and we sort of sequester ourselves in this little coastal uh, inn. 
And, um, you know, the first day he, we, we meet, have a cup of coffee. He opens up his laptop. He starts writing. And I, um, you know, wander down to the beach and collect seashells. And then uh, we have lunch. And then I discover that there's a little um, uh, supermarket down the road. I get in the car. I go down there and I buy a carton of, I mean, a sleeve of Fig Newtons that have been there since 1974 or something. And I come back and I have some tea and I open my notebook and I eat Fig Newtons. And I ask him at like 430, are you done? And at the end of the two weeks, I have written like maybe a scene. Um, and he has written a, essentially the first draft of a novel. And I was so angry. I actually said these words. I said, well, the only reason you could do that is because you're not a professional writer, which <laughs> he kind of looked at me like, OK, now, did have psychological the book get published? Um, yeah, but I believe I believe it did. I mean, it I think did? it did. And then it turned into a bunch of short stories, which did get published. So, he, you know, he, he did. Okay. Yeah, screw that guy. Yeah, that guy's a loser. Screw that guy, too. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, Vladimir Nabokov or Nabokov, however you pronounce it, would uh, write for I think three hours, four hours every morning at a lectern, <laughs> and then right. you know, then he had his whole day. He all said the same thing. Then he had, well, then then he had whole his whole day. day. Yeah, is, well, is there Joseph, a debate about how to pronounce Nabokov? Is, is, it's Nabokov. I thought it was Nabokov. Is it Nabokov? It was Nabokov, unless you're Sting, and then you say Nabokov to make it rhyme with cough. And don't stand so close. Shows to me. you what a product of the 1980s I am. There okay. you go. Right. Right. Yeah. So Joseph Conrad, who of course was like the Shohei Otani of writers, because you know he grew up. He didn't speak English till he was 17, and then he became a you know he was a Polish English was his guy. Third he became it was his third language, and he became one of the great English pro stylists. But Conrad would have his wife lock him in a room from the outside to write and then he would bang on the door screaming to beg her to let out <laughs> that's 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 a writer see the that's thing about writer. writing see, a in, book in the, yeah go ahead in the in the 1990s i got a book contract when i was still a television producer and all that kind of stuff and i had a really hard time doing this book in part because the conceit of it was just wildly flawed I, i'm sure i've talked to you about this pod where it was supposed to be the there are these books, you've seen them for Jews. You know, it's like the hundred most influential Jews of all time. Yeah. Most of the, but I was supposed to write the one for conservatives. And, right. Oh my God. And the problem was, was that hey, the those, editor- those groups intersect, by the way, I think. They do. They do. I mean, there's the Venn diagrams are not completely one on top of the other, but, you know, they do intersect. But I was supposed to be, it was supposed to be um, of all time, but half the people on the list had to be alive. So it'd be like Aristotle's number two, and then Newt Gingrich, Kurt and then <laughs> yeah. and I just and it, so I learned a lot from the process of doing it, whatever. But it was just really, really hard. And I had a day job, and I had a social life, and blah blah blah. And I remember complaining to my dad about it, and my dad said, "Yeah, Jonah, I know you have it hard and you're busy, but you do realize that Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote the Gulag Archipelago on a roll of toilet paper from prison, and." Um, so I'm sure you can manage. Yeah, and, screw that guy. And you're like, and well, how can I not know <laughs> screw that? that guy? He's but, number but toilet paper. But but He's my point 24. was that he had nothing else to do, right? You know, he was yeah, lucky him. <laughs> yeah, lucky exactly. him. That's what that's what we're saying. He yeah, didn't worked, have a job out for him. He didn't have a job yeah. as a television producer. That's right. 
Yeah, so he had he had he had he had, he had time to focus. Is what you're yeah, saying? I mean, my like experience you have, you have writing moldy bread. You get yeah. beaten up by a guard, yeah. and then yeah. you have your yeah. whole day. Ahead of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the whole day left. The whole day. So now you I, get up um, early. You do the writing. That's the smart thing yeah. for him. He got up early, did the writing, and then he had the whole day left to be tortured. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my experience, and uh, I've written three books, and Jonah, I think you you've written three, three, four, three. three okay, three. so the weird thing is that you can understand a guy like. James Patterson or whoever, because he really does write to form. He has invented a formula. He talks about the formula. He talks yeah. about how he writes short chapters, short paragraphs, using words that, you know, no one over 10th grade education would use and, you know, very formulaic. Michael Crichton, you know, who was one of the most successful novelists of the 20th century, had an incredibly rigid formula. Like his books took place over a week. It was always like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. The sections were the days of the week, and then it ended on the seventh day. Um, stuff like that. But you know, when in most cases, when you're writing a book, so it's like you want to say, you know, what I am? I'm really, I'm a, I'm just, I'm a tradesman. I'm a craftsman. I'm like a carpenter. Yeah, I'm a carpenter, and I'm and I'm and I'm, you know, I'm making a a, a piece of you know furniture. The problem is that in writing books, actually writing anything, but but particularly writing books, it's like you're inventing the idea of a sofa and then you're making the sofa and then you have to upholster and embroider the sofa. But when you start there, you sort of have a very vague idea of what a sofa is, but you really have no idea. So you are are teaching yourself while you're writing the book you're writing to write the book you're writing. And it's a very unnerving process and and right. and it requires a certain type of emotional stamina that you could really you understand why it drives people crazy and why i say screw that guy because alexander solzhenitsyn managed to write you know like dozens of books on toilet paper and and i envy him i envy him being in the gulag just like jonah <laughs> because i'm yeah he was here so in the lucky. Lap of luxury and i'm like wait uh you know wordle i, I gotta do wordle yeah. Yeah, I, talk about being born on third base. That guy, that guy had a <laughs> that guy. Screw that guy is all I can say yet again. And so on the Crichton thing, just out of curiosity, yeah. did anyone make a case that like this was part of his god complex that he would build worlds that oh you know, interesting over seven days? In- interesting. I never huh. know, but that 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 would be a nature that finds would be a way. interesting. You know what Churchill said after he finished his fifth book. I've what? now written as many books as Moses. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he's well, not wrong. <laughs> you want to screw that guy, Andrew Roberts, Churchill's biographer. He's the perfect screw that guy. Yeah. Cause yeah. he's like, you know, every, you know, writes like an, you know, 800 page right. book or Neil Ferguson or whatever. Anyway. So I said to, to Andrew, when, af- after I finished his Churchill biography, which is a magnificent piece of work, like, I don't understand. I don't understand how you did this because it's, you know, 1100 pages long. And he said, well, it's, it's actually very simple. So what I did was I spent three years and I created this timeline of Churchill's life. And I literally had a book in which I knew what Churchill did on every day of his life between the t- you know the day that he was born and the day he died. If he did something, I knew it, and I had it chronologically. And then once I finished that, I then wrote the book essentially following that. And I said, well, how long did it take you to write the book? And he said, oh, seven months. Screw that the guy. The timeline took him right, like two forever. years right. or yeah. two and a half years. But writing right. 1,100 pages... <laughs> 
took him seven months. So yeah, would it be great if guy. like he if he discovered that he was off by like three days? <laughs> and it's like, oh god, I got to go back and hey, do the second whole thing edition. Again. Yeah, so revised and updated by the author. And you know, one thing about uh, writing is you got to be comfortable, right? You know that. Sure, you got to be comfortable. And particularly in the fall, you got to be comfortable in the fall when you're writing because fall's very unpredictable, right? And, you know, according to what I'm reading right here, fall is chaos in your pants. Yes, I'm going to read that sentence again. Fall is chaos in your pants. You're overheating one second, you're freezing the next. To be ready for anything, you need underwear that can handle everything and therefore resolve the chaos in your pants. It's time for Tommy John underwear. In Tommy John underwear, you're that much more comfortable so you can do everything better, including writing a biography of Churchill. Name a problem with other underwear. Tommy John solved it. It's breathable, lightweight fabric, has four times the stretch of competing brands, come with a no wedgie guarantee thanks to a non-rolling waistband and legs that never ride up. Plus, they feature a horizontal quick-draw fly. Hammock pouch support stops the awkward swing and slap giving everyone something to be grateful for except me right now. With over 17 million pairs sold, people love Tommy John underwear. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. Plus, everything's backed with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Go to TommyJohn.com slash glop right now for 20% off your first order. 20% off at TommyJohn.com slash glop. TommyJohn.com slash glop. See site for details. And this is what I get for reading the co- the copy live without knowing what was t- coming my way in the copy. Do you remember that episode of MASH? I know you guys hate MASH, and I, I, I can MASH. basically agree with you, but sort of. there was that scene where uh, Hawkeye is trying to defuse an unexploded bomb in the middle of the compound, and and I always butcher it, but it was, I, so I'm paraphrasing, but Radar is reading over a loudspeaker, over a megaphone, uh, the, the instructions, and it says, cut the blue wire. And they cut it very dramatic, and then Radar says, "But first, cut the green wire." <laughs> right. It's that moment in yeah. uh, in the movie. Yeah, it's you not should a great read movie, the copy it's... before you read the yeah. copy. Is what it's you're a saying. moment in that movie. It's not a great movie. It's a uh, death becomes her when yeah. Isabella oh, yeah. Rossellini is like in, doing this incantation with Meryl Streep, and she says, "You'll drink this potion, and you'll never get old. You'll always stay young." Uh, and then Meryl Streep drinks it. And then Elizabeth Rossley says, and now a warning. (laughs) Now a warning? (laughs) Okay, so so this total out of left field. So yesterday I watched a trailer for the new live action. You know, Disney's been making live action versions of its cartoons, you know, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and Dumbo. And now it's made Pinocchio with in perhaps the weirdest act of casting in the history of mankind, Tom Hanks as Geppetto. Right. Tom Hanks is Geppetto and Pinocchio is a little wooden boy who isn't of course wood, but is rather CGI. And um, I bring this up because it looks really spectacularly weird yeah. and disturbing. Cause it's like Tom Hanks, but then like the, you know, the, the, the promoters that, that take them to the island and turn them into donkeys or whatever it is are CGI animals. And it right. looks really bizarre. And the director of this Pinocchio is Robert Zemeckis who directed death becomes Always a Her. mistake. 
to have Zemeckis direct something? No, he does this thing. He's like he's obsessed with uh, motion capture yeah. and uh, and CGI spaces and a Polar Express was. I mean, he, it never works. Yeah. And I know people who work with him. And every time he's about to do a new one, they say exactly the same thing. Which yeah. they say, no, 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 no. This time it doesn't look weird. We yeah. fixed it. It doesn't look weird. Yeah. yeah. So he 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 made. So this is. Because he did this, you know, radical dramatic advance in the mixture of live action and animation, which was who framed Roger Rabbit, which was, of course, um, a masterpiece. Um, and then he made Forrest Gump, which had that had that weird, you know, dropping Forrest Gump Zelig like into real world footage with, you know, interacting with John F. Kennedy and stuff like that. So he had these two huge successes. And then he just like ru- ruined his career because he got obsessed with this horrible making things going into the uncanny valley. And I've right. never, I don't understand these guys. Like he, his version of Beowulf, aside from being a total nightmarish, horrible version of Beowulf, it's like when they finish the first week shooting and they go look at whatever it is they look at. Right. How do you not say, yeah, screw it. Screw this. Well, because nothing. I, I, this is, here's this is why. really. This it, is really like we're throwing good money after bad. Let's get the hell out of here. Every time you do it, you're convinced that you've solved the problem that you had, which was that it looks weird, and it doesn't look as weird as it did. But it looks you're, you're deeper in the valley. That's the problem, and you don't ever see it until it's too late. That's the problem with these movies: is that you're you're looking at, uh, you know footage that's cut in and you're and maybe sometimes animatics and you're saying okay well this will be this will this is what this is going to look like this will look like that and it is incredibly attractive to a direct i mean look, zemeckis is a brilliant director he's really great yeah but it's incredibly attractive to directors because they're like oh so you mean i don't have to talk to an actor <laughs> it's like no you don't have to i just can right. sit there and like like I have my yeah. breakfast and then I go in the room and I see what the yeah. guy did and I ask him to make the, the cheekbones a little better and then I leave and then I go and what you know, it's like so attractive um that your the hard work is is done without any pressure at all, just the pressure of time. But you're not hundred and fifty people aren't staring at you and some actor isn't doing it wrong and it I can see why I can see the appeal. And you can see like he must be a brilliant evangelist because he talked Steven Spielberg into making an absolutely terrible movie using exactly the same again technology, which yeah. was tin, his version of Tintin, which is unwatchable. Mm-hmm. And Spielberg, it's the only unwatchable Steven Spielberg movie, as far as I can tell. And it's unwatchable because it has that quality. And it's really weird. And I guess James Cameron did it with Avatar, but Avatar is a cartoon. It's not, yeah. it doesn't actually, and so is Tintin, really. But I mean, Avatar is, they kind of, he kind of figures out, it's like, go into the, or yeah. it's supposed to look, I don't know. There's this Avatar 2 coming out. Is it possible? Yeah. Is it? I mean, I hated Avatar 1, so I can't possibly be a, a proper judge of, but I right. keep seeing the trailer and it looks awful. So I, 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 I don't know. I didn't like but, the first one. I didn't like. I didn't get it. Uh, the, uh, the the I have a funny story about the ride because my family, my brother, oh, the and his ride family is fantastic. went on the ride. And because they, they went to down to Disney World, I guess. And um, and they were telling me about it. And my nephew said something like, and, you know, it's actually great. The, the line, it's only two hour line. You're only in line for two hours. <laughs> what are you talking about? That's insanity. But that's fun stuff to like watch. 
As you as you in two hours, your nephew is right. If you like rides, the Avatar ride at, at Disney World is one of the greatest things that has oh, ever. Oh, honey, been I don't designed. have two hours. I got no time. Okay. I got, well, I, I if you get the hour. right, if you get the right lightning pass or whatever it is, it's it's only an hour. So you should just yeah. you should just so you know freeze that. right in, and then so you get the I'm, rest of your day. Get whole. I'm day a left. big believer in the lightning passes. Like I go to amusement parks once a year, maybe. Yeah. Like if you value your time and you want to have quality time with your kids, the idea of like waiting three and a half hours for one ride versus spending and they're expensive, but it's just to me, it's like return yeah. on investment is just enormous with those things if you can afford it. So it's interesting though, you know, because Disney has spent 70 years trying to figure its way out of the ride line problem because it never wanted, it wanted to have one price ticket for everybody. Right. This was very important to Disney as a populist thing where it takes every, everyone in America should go and all of this. And so unlike Universal and these other places where you can pay a huge premium to get a thing that lets you get ahead of the line, Disney resisted and resisted and resisted this. And then it kept trying to invent ways to get you a special pass. You go, you get a fast pass, or you go this, but everybody can do it. You get three. And apparently this year, they're finally breaking down and going the lightning pass route. But like, like everything in the world, people figure out how to bust the code. So if you were willing to spend $1,500 a day at Disney, Disney World, like two or three years ago, and you hire a guide. You hire someone's called a guide. It's fifteen hundred bucks, and the guide basically, and Disney sort of, I think, understood this, goes around bribing people who run the rides to let their parties <laughs> in the back door. So the guide keeps seven hundred and fifty dollars, and then pays the people on the ride to let Pretty them good. in. And so, since the price point was so high. It really was only for, you know, very rich people coming to the parks and there wouldn't be that many in in any given day. And so this and then they something happened and they ended the they ended this system. They 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 cracked down and they ended the system. And so friends of mine who had taken advantage of this were just absolutely gobsmacked and horrified that they had lost their secret way. (laughs) Their bribe money? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, they, were, they, they were were just tell you like, it wasn't up to that. They weren't bribing anybody. It will yeah. always still be possible to bribe people. Like, <laughs> oh, that's, <good. laughs> that's like a rule of the universe. That's it may not so be cost efficient, but yeah. Um, well, you've so just got that, a super outlook on life. <laughs> so I have a friend who is a who is a ride lunatic and a Star Wars lunatic and is right now at huh. Disney staying in the special Star Wars 24 hour a day special is the word day yeah. hotel and immersive experience as yeah. we speak oh she God. is there she is on she's on a cruiser she sent me pictures of her room uh where What do you mean on a cruiser? Yeah. I don't yeah, what what does that, that mean? On a galactic cruiser oh. which is so the root, so the hotel, ready? Mm-hmm. Genius. It's underground because there are no windows because you're on a deep you're space, space cruiser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they oh, built the brilliant. hotel is underground, and so she's in this room, and there's a couple of bunk beds to look like a ship, and then there's a bed, 
And it's uh, it's it's five thousand dollars, I think, for the stay for like two nights. Yeah, or three no nights. windows, and there are no windows. <laughs> and then you walk nice. around. You have you have your your issued clothes. You have a lightsaber, and you you undergo. And then the the imperial forces attack, and you have to fight them. And this and that and the other thing. And to and me, this woman is the Republican senator from Maine. <laughs> 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 to me, this sounds like hell on earth. Doesn't like really, though, John. You know so many details have. about it, but it makes me suggest. I makes me would, think the brochures are open on your desk right now. It, it, it is so not. I am so claustrophobic that that the idea of like well, spending three nights in an underground hotel, not no matter what, no matter what it looks like, <laughs> is already in a tomb. All right, well, let me let me ask you guys this. Um, Let's just let's just sort of stipulate that none of us are eager to stay in any movie themed hotels, right? Yeah. But uh, if you had, if someone else was yeah. paying for it, yeah. What and 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 you had to do it anyway to write a piece or whatever. But yeah, what in your heart's desire? What movie themed hotel would you would you want to stay in? If whether that's it exists good, currently, that's a really or not good question. That is a really good question. I would want I to say a, it's the, a classic Rob in a question. Casablanca. Yeah, I would do it. Yeah, in a heartbeat. Yeah, I I was going to say Great Gatsby, but I think Casablanca is much much better. Yeah. Well, I was actually thinking if you think about movie hotels, mm-hmm. so the Grand Budapest Hotel would probably be the one you would want to stay in from right, the no, Grand but I, Budapest I mean, like, Hotel. A movie, the Overlook, a movie franchise oh, yeah. that oh, is oh, a you world building. Stay in the Overlook. I would stay in the Overlook. I so said, this is here, you know, it's like the twins are coming in 10 minutes. Well, you know, here come the Diane Arbus twins. In yeah, 10 minutes. Minutes. Call management. <laughs> There's a kid on a big wheel who's driving me yeah. crazy going by my room. Well, you have to pay <laughs> extra for having a, a character breakfast with the twins. <laughs> that would be the best. The be- that's right. Or like, or like. The yeah. furries would stay yeah. there a lot. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Also the blood elevator. Like what, it, what, what, what would that, uh. You know, you'd you actually have to, have to experience your, you have to use the blood your root key to get that to work. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, like, I, I guess part of the problem is, is like, we're now the, the way I envision the question is much more like, if you could create a Westworld type world, what would the right. Westworld be? And right. um, this is in no way an endorsement of the HBO series Westworld, right. which I yeah. have enormous sunk costs in, even though yes. I have not been entertained by it. For four you mean the original seasons. Westworld. Do you actually mean the Westworld, Westworld that Michael yeah. Crichton wrote sure. and directed? That's right. With Richard Where Benjamin. it's like there was like Pornland and Westernland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, so if you're talking about like where would you, what experience would you want to have like it's like that time, it's like the time machine question. Like if you could go on a time machine and just spend an hour somewhere in history yeah uh, where would you go and i'm still kind of like new york 1953 is that too parochial of me i mean obviously you want to go to imperial <laughs> rome yeah i mean you you know if you were really serious you would want to be in you know ancient right. jerusalem or something like yeah. that but or you know the forbidden city at the height of its power so, but but assuming that we're talking about something more prosaic and just that was simply a kind of tourism you know, just to see something that like transfixes you. Yeah. New York in the fifties is my, even though it's like only like seven or eight years before I was born. Rob, what do you, what do you have? You mean time? I mean, I, I think hotel Casablanca for sure. I, I think, I think um, maybe Paris before the war, uh-huh. like right before the war, the kind of Alan first kind of land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd be into the Alan first kind of world. Um, 
I, oh, I that think book too is far so. Back, which is the Alan first the, book where great. it's the it's the movie producer who is trapped know, in Paris. They live the world by at night, night, or the maybe? world at night is yeah. uh, so. Alan first writes these spy novels. They're not really spy novels. If you've never read them, they're pretty um, good. They're, I, I reckon they're, but, he's written yeah. a million of them. Um, the, uh, uh, so that I think that's where I would be. Where would you be, Jonah? I mean, I, I, I'm I'm nervous about going farther back because I'm I'm worried about being stabbed or getting some horrible disease, <laughs> right? Or just See, having 1953. Dis- I figure you're you could only you could get polio. Right. I mean, and, and there's also there there are crucial distinctions between the fan the movie fan movie super fan hotel yeah. and actual time travel, right? There's That's just right. different That's considerations right. involved. Yeah, right. There's different kinds of ick involved in like the hotel thing yeah. than like actually going back in time, you know, right, um, right, right. Where would uh, you go? but back in time or a hotel thing, both. So back in time, I don't know, like, like assuming I had all the right shots and antibiotics and all that kind of stuff, either like medieval England, you know, uh, or, yeah, or ancient, no, or, or like ancient Judea, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, uh-huh. ancient Rome generally, I mean, but I, it really I is. I mean, I, I uh, and, and, okay. And so what about the hotel? So the hotel, I mean, obviously, uh, my dinner with Andre, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> no, that's right. You know, I'll the have hotel. the quail. <laughs> um, well, I, that wasn't going to be a follow-up question is what would be the worst movie super fan hotel? Like, Bates. Um, like Bates. Bates. Yeah. But like, there are people who are like willing to heart my wife and daughter, every Thanksgiving, they go to these like live action horror houses where like yeah. human beings come out and chase you and scare the crap out of you. Yeah. And all that. It's like my worst nightmare. I hate that stuff so right. much, but like, I would for like, me the worst the deer would, hunter hotel that would be bad yeah right <laughs> bow, bow, um, uh, my 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 I, you know this I, I think this might be a hot take but more uh, un, unpopular take but the, I think the worst hotel uh, of this kind would be to stay in the Grand Budapest Hotel all those little twee people running around just give me my freaking mm, coffee mm. and stop it with the vests and the hat and the weird dialogue I would just I would find that I think the character role playing in that would be so irritating. <sighs> And so not about like being a good you know, hotel employee that I would be in, enraged. You know, enraged. Would be great, like Godfather Hotel. Yeah. Right. Could be Godfather great. Hotel. You know, you know, you know, there are two hotels in things that I think would be tra- transfixing. One would be to be at the Twin Peaks Lodge. And I don't mm-hmm. mean the 2017 Twin Peaks. I mean the 1991 right. Right. Uh, Twin Peaks Lodge. And then the sure. worst depiction the most brilliant bad depiction of a hotel or like of a hotel as the dark night of the soul place is barton fink barton fink, which yeah. if you remember he checks into this hotel it's like 1930s la and he's falling to pieces because he has writer's block interesting connection to the beginning of the show why, why didn't he just and, do it he just sat down and done it in the morning and he had i know day then it was, it was so yeah, hot. the whole day it's so hot, so hot. That but like, but yeah. like the wallpaper is slightly peeling off. There's like a buzzing sign in the hallway that won't stop buzzing. And your neighbor you John Goodman bulb. keeps coming and over. He kept coming over, and then it turns out he's a serial killer. I mean, but I mean, th- there's that, like that, that depiction of a know, hotel does, does as, the, as the. <laughs> 
Yeah, Bates Hotel will be rough too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, Bates Hotel. No, so obviously, that, think about it. It's the like, Overlook, which we already yeah, talked about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would say I've just been on a. I had. I like to travel, and I hadn't been on a sort of a big travel in a while. So I went on a big travel recently, and um, and I was thinking about that, and maybe it's just my age, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be honest and be super blunt here. But as a certain age, when you reach an age, maybe I don't remember doing this when I was in, even in my 30s, you do kind of start to think. Uh, uh, all of your thinking and your planning and your travel sort of like awareness is centered around the ass. Uh, where is it going to be? Where is it going to sit? Where's it going to lie down? Is it going to be dry? Is it going to be wet? Are you going to be able to regulate it? And when you regulate it, will you, will there be a place to regulate it? You know, we already did the Tommy John ad. This is I know, a but, fantastic lead in. But it, like, these are the things that, you, that a, a gentleman of like me uh, of a certain age, uh, thinks about. And, um, I did discover that I was thinking about it more than I rec- ever thought about it before in any of the travels I've done through Central Asia through uh, India, I mean, never, never, none of that I ever thought about after the Sahara. I never really, but now I'm in, you know, I'm a gentleman in my fifties and I'm like, well, wait a minute. What's, um, what are we talking about here? Comfort wise. <laughs> well, that's the thing is I, I, I basically, I did a lot of backpacking, hostel, you know, travel poor, travel light right. kind of stuff. I'm done with that. I mean, I really just, I'm just done. I don't care if I sound snobbish or whatever. I just like, I, you know, uh, uh, like I, I, I've never been to India. I would love to go to India. I cannot yet afford to go to India on the only terms that I will ever go to India. (laughs) Um, Right. 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 And so I just wait, you know, um, the thing about India is that it actually, I mean, all that stuff does matter, but the irony is the longer you're there, the better it is because no matter who you are, where you are, I did a lot of traveling and you go to India, there's still like two and a half, three days of like, Holy mo I just, you kind of, everything seizes up. You're like, this is just too much. You need to Mm -hmm. relax Mm -hmm. into it. Um, I thought you were talking uh, about your gastrointestinal well, adjustments. Yeah, they, everything doesn't seize up there. That's uh, yeah. the, <laughs> the, the opposite problem. <laughs> all my all my friends, when I was in India, the one that comes in, oh, you, you, you're going to have a lovely time, but don't eat from the roads. Don't eat from the roads. Meaning don't, <laughs> you know, somebody's selling something on the street. Do not put it in your mouth. <laughs> so uh, for work reasons, my wife uh, just went to Australia. And um, I've always wanted to go to Australia. But... Uh, the and I, I she confirmed that she had to go for work and she actually had to go for a ridiculously short amount of time like five days so and it's a day literally it's like 24 hours of travel just to get there yeah, right. and, and then 24 hours of travel to get back and so as people have told me it is pretty grueling to go if you don't go business class and of course going business class costs ten fifteen thousand dollars or something like that when I was 24, I went to Thailand to visit a girlfriend who was working in Thailand. And my trip back, because of, you know, cheap tickets. We're going to have to come back to that. Yeah. <laughs> that is not, that, that's not just going to be Journalist. something that you stay and move on. Yes. Journalist. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway. Uh-huh. Uh, was that, was that trip back. her role in the theme hotel? Yeah, right. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's but when what you, you say want. a girlfriend, does that mean is are you doing it in the contemporary sense in that that this is a person who presented as a girl? Because in <laughs> Thailand, you know, that's that's a they've been playing this game. For that's a, long time. a more anyway, complicated question than you know. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh wow! Double <laughs> pin. <laughs> anyway, you can put a pin in it forever. Uh, that well, pen will not be removed. Apparently not from, from the from the corkboard. That costs anyway. Extra. Yeah. But coming back, uh-huh. not only did my trip back, which went through Seoul and Anchorage, take yeah. 30 hours, but I was in a middle seat. Oof. Oh. So uh, yeah. fortunately, I was thinner then than I am now. So but it you're wasn't a kid. quite the it's like, agony. It's funny, you know? I, I was a kid, but it was still among the most traumatic experiences of say, my life. I, I and I'm going to tell a story now that's going to get me into trouble, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Oh, but uh, like as you get older, like you, you uh, so the, there's good things and bad things, right? The good things are, I mean, the bad things are that you get older and you're going to die, and the Reaper's coming for you just as fast as he possibly can, and um, and then you start to think about things like the you're you're frankly the they're the ass. Like what's the ass going to be doing in um you know North Africa or in uh, Uzbekistan? Like these are the things you think about, um. But the upside is you're kind of invisible if you're certain age, you're traveling around. You're like a guy. You're a white a white man in his middle fifties. I got to be honest with you, uh, with an American passport is basically invisible. And to the extent that anyone pays any attention to him, it's to say, "Don't you want to come here to the front of the line?" So I flew from uh, Budapest <laughs> to, Tun- to Tunis to Tunisia, and I flew. Uh, you go through uh, Paris, and I landed, and I'm so standing there in the, in the passport line. And a woman comes up. She goes, "Don't you want to come in the faster line?" And I said, "Yes, absolutely, I do. How do I do that?" She goes, "You sit over here." And she just pulled me out of the line, and I sat there. And she took my passport in a little office, and uh, it cost twenty euros. It was the VIP twenty euros treatment, and I just whisked away, and that was fine. It was great. Leaving Tunis, I was taking the ferry from uh, Tunis to Marseille, which is a 22-hour ferry, and I was thinking it was kind of fun. You're on the Mediterranean. It's kind of a cool, like, uh, ocean, uh, you know, uh, sea voyage. Uh, I love boats. It's kind of a fun thing. Um, but everybody I told I was doing this looked at me like, why are you doing that? Well, why don't you just fly? And uh, I didn't really put it together. I kept saying, oh, the adventure's kind of fun. And then I realized that the only people who take the ferry are people either with cars. You know, and Tunisia was a... Um, was a you know province uh, not a departement but a province of of france and so everybody speaks french there they they they, they travel freely to france um so you have a car you go back and forth you have a family in either place uh, or you're a family you have a big family and you don't want to fly because you don't want to pay all the, all the tickets or um you're a, a drug smuggler <laughs> and so i uh my entire um my luggage get leaving tunis was just searched like crazy. Everything I've never I've never been searched like that. And they found these little um, my uh, my little microphones. They're tiny, and I use them to record. And they're um, they're made by a company called DJI, which makes drones, which you're not really allowed to have. So they kept saying, "Where's the where are the drones? Where are the drones?" And I said, "No, there aren't any drones." And so where are the drones? This is a drone company. I'm like, "No, these are microphones." But I forgot the word. I was kind of nervous, so I forgot the word in French for microphone for some reason, which is actually microphone or micro. And I kept saying micro owned, micro owned. Ils sont les petits micro ondes, which means, as I realized five minutes later, I was saying, these are little microwave ovens. <laughs> so they search everything and they find, um, for some reason, I feel absolutely invulnerable. Um, they find uh, my, um, my psychedelic drugs. 
that I travel with <laughs> for some reason. I don't know why I do that. But this with everything. It's like I put them in with they're in with the Pepto Bismol and the Lomatil and the Anacin. They're in. They're like, and they but they don't have a label, and so they want to know what those are. And so then I'm thinking, oh my God, this is is this the beginning You're of the night? Brittany Griner. Micro dose. Micro dose, right? <laughs> is this the beginning of like Midnight Express portion of my life, right? Um, so, and it's like 20 guys, and they're really concerned by this. And then they say, well, what are this? And they point to the stuff, and they go, oh, no, there's a medicament chinois pour l'estomac. Chinese herbal medicine for the stomach, which they almost buy. And then they, they, they hold up a little envelope and say, what's in there? And uh, I say, oh, that's the same show. Say, on fait un thé, on fait une infusion. And they say, what's that? And they point to the label, which says LSD. <laughs> really, that's the level of my. So everybody's like, I'm there for half an hour. Now the boat's ready to let go. And now you, the leverage changes because you can tell that um, they're starting to realize if the boat goes, I'm theirs now. And they don't really want me. Uh, and so people start to shimmer out of the room and basically leave just me and the boss. And he's like, oh, I don't know what to do. So um, he says, oh, Joe, you're fine. You're fine. He keeps apologizing to me. And I keep saying in old French, no, no, no. We've got to be on regular. It's got to be by the book. Uh, I totally understand. I'm being Mr. Genial. And then as I leave, for some reason, it tells me you can go. As I leave, for some reason, I make up this absurd lie about the mushroom. I say, it's a gift from a Chinese friend of mine. And she believes in all this stuff, but it doesn't work. But if you would like, maybe it will work for you. <laughs> and I leave him one. I tell him to make a tea with it if he's had a bad stomach, and I get on the boat, and I sail away to Marseille. So somewhere right now, maybe, there's a Tunisian <laughs> customs officer who, is suddenly, who suddenly realizes that we're all one, and he's going to call his dad and just say, Dad, I just I forgive you for everything. That's my son. So, so when you got on the deck, did you get on the deck, and, and then you said, Oh, my God, Poirot! My good fellow. Like, that's all I can <laughs> yeah, think yeah, of. It's right, like, right. who else would be on that boat? Yeah, it's like, exactly. Yes, I will not fly. I will not. Uh, no, I will but not there fly. is a murder. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good Poirot, yeah. That's Thank you good. very much. Thank yeah. you. Um, so that's you know, my we story. I'm going to remain silent. That is, that is why you decided to drop a dirty dime on the poor Tunisian customs officer is a question for you and your and your, and your your oneness, I guess. Um, we we should get back to the Game of Thrones for two seconds. Jonah, did you like House of the Dragon? You know, I did. You know, I'm I'm bought on Game of Thrones world. I will watch all of their stuff until you have to convince me otherwise. Um, um, I kind of liked that they were willing to leap into it in, in a way that you, you had to work a little bit. I mean, I agree with you about the names and stuff, and I just let that wash over me. But I, I like it when shows have a certain confidence that they don't spoon feed you from the get go and you have to kind of figure out what's going on. Um, I'm pretty sure that they've screwed up some of the timeline, but we don't need to get in the weeds of that. I mean, like in Game of Thrones, they talk about how dragons have been gone for two or three centuries and how the last ones were no bigger than cats because they've been inbred poorly. And yet this thing says that it's 172 years before or 192 years before the birth of the mad King, which just doesn't work with all these big ass robust dragons around. But I, I, I that just, was Rob's sort of like... complaint. I think that's what Rob was really upset about. <laughs> was yeah. the, the inconsistency in the timeline. 
you know me, I'm a stickler for dragons. Well, I'm like Andrew Roberts. You know, I want the timeline straight before we get into the creative stuff. Right. See, you know, sort I, of like I, my I complain about, about about Obi-Wan is like it costs them nothing to get the canon right. Yeah. You know, we don't have to get into this. And so when they get it wrong, it just it's like, why? What? You know, who? there's no benefit to it. And there's only downside, even if there's not a lot of downside. I, I really liked it. I was startled that I liked it because um, my experience of a lot of this streaming stuff is, is that if I allow myself to get excited by a trailer or by the possibility of something, I find that I watch it and then it's on for like 20 minutes and I'm like, oh, here we go again. It's just like another, yeah. it didn't, it's not, it's like a flower that's not opening. It's not working or it's, they've spent so much money. They've tried so hard and, you know, here we are again. And particularly with fantasy stuff, there's this show, The Wheel of Time on on on, on Amazon. And so it's like, oh, here they go. They're walking through another forest in New Zealand. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> I don't want to see, if I see New Zealand, what, you know, uh, yeah. un, undeveloped New Zealand one more time, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, die. Imagine if Peter Jackson had just grown up in Akron, Ohio. <laughs> That's where all the Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings would look like Ohio. Right. Uh, what would Peter Jackson be eating or drinking if he, what. he had grown up in Akron, Ohio and wanted to be healthy? Well, if you want to be healthy, I'm glad you, you, you asked me that, John. Uh, our next partner has a product I use literally every day, Athletic Greens. And I started taking AG1 because I uh, don't like taking multivitamins and I would always forget them. And this was the perfect way to sort of get all the multis and the probiotics, the prebiotics and all that other stuff and the inulin into uh, my system in a fun way. Um, and so what is this stuff? And, and also the fact that it tastes good. It actually tastes good and not weirdly sweet and crazy like a lot of these um, drinks. Um, with uh, AG1, one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy recovery focus, and aging, all of those things. Now, they always say you can start your day. I, um, I get them in little packets, and I don't always start my day with it. I sometimes just do it in the afternoon. And it's a really kind of nice lift. It like replaces the coffee that I try not to drink in the afternoon. Uh, and it um, it's fantastic and delicious and not weirdly sweet or chemically it, or too greeny. It's just, it's a really, really nice taste. Um, it's also one of the best things is that they use the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. Contains less than a gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. Still tastes great. It supports better sleep quality, recovery, along with mental clarity and alertness, which you may not have noticed with me, but believe me, without it, you would. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills, supplements to look for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first pur purchase. The travel packs are fantastic, by the way. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash glop. Again, that is athleticgreens, all one word, dot com slash glop and take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And you that you couldn't give to the Tunisian guy. You have to give the Tunisian guy a mushroom. Yeah, I thought about it, but the thing is, I only had I only had like enough athletic greens packs left for me. I didn't want to like, you know, like also I figured like the guy, 
you know, he just needs to relax. He'll he'll be bad. He's fine. <laughs> I'm sure he's fine. Uh, uh, <laughs> the dumbest thing I've ever done. Have you guys seen Nope? Yes. Yes. Okay. I saw it this week with my daughter. What you think? Um, my daughter loved it. Ah. Um, I liked it. It definitely had held my attention. I felt like, um, what's his name? The director, um, Jordan Peele, Jordan Peele was like a big chunk of it was him having conversations with other directors and responding to other directors. It was like, take that M night Shyamalan, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, but it was interesting. I mean, it held my attention and I'm like, what the hell's going on? And, um, so I, I, I liked it. I liked it. So I didn't really like it. I mean, I, I, my problem was that I wanted it to be a movie about a, the secondary character and ditch the primary characters. I wanted the story of the, the kid, kid and the, and yeah. the, yeah. And mm-hmm. the monkey that goes insane and tears up the set and uh, and and kills people and i thought that was a fantastic idea about you know how to do something about someone trying to exist in a world which he had this traumatic experience that happened in public in the most public possible way in the in the movie nope which is about a ranch a hollywood ranch that trains horses for the movies and down the street from the ranch is a is an wild amusement west show kind of thing. A wild west yeah, show right. uh, run by a guy a, a guy who was a kid on a sitcom about a monkey, and the monkey goes uh, the monkey goes primal, goes bananas, goes bananas. <laughs> yeah, and 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 atta- this is in the mid nineties and attacks everybody on the set. And there's right. you see the scene twice, uh, both at the beginning of the movie and the middle, and it's absolutely fantastic it's like something you've you never, never seen the before. scene really but you don't yeah. really see it which i think is what but it was that yeah i feel like that was the that was the that was a move that was a very la story right it's that great yeah. line where the guy is trying to explain goes did you see the snl skit about it that's pretty much yeah. what it was like which yeah is a great line um yeah i i i i i i wasn't bored in it really and then i left and i as i was walking away i started not to like it so much i was sort of like ah it was interesting i like the fact that this guy is doing these movies um it, it, incredibly idiosyncratic one of a kind didn't really work for me but um i don't know i mean i mean the, the sort of guts it took to say yeah. okay this is what this movie is going to be about is impressive yeah, and yeah. um, and if you judge it by the sort of like, is it still in your head days later, and you're thinking about it? I think it's pretty successful. Um, so I hadn't seen us. So he's made three movies. Jordan Peele, who people may or may not know, listen to this podcast, was part of a comedy duo that did a a really brilliant sketch comedy series. Great one on. Comedy Central called Key and Peele, and he was like the the younger brother of Key and Peele. Like uh, Keegan Michael Key was his co star and was really kind of the star of Key and Peele. And they kind of the, the show ends and he goes off to make movies. And you sort of figured, well, who knows what's ever going to happen to Jordan Peele? And then he made Get Out, which was one of the great debut films in the history of movies, and he won an Oscar for the screenplay. And then he makes this movie, Us. And I have to say, I didn't see Us because the trailer looked too scary. Mm-hmm. 
I was too scared to see us. And then I went to see Nope. And then I had to write about Nope. And so I thought I needed to see us and us, which really doesn't stick the landing. Like the last 10 or 15 minutes really don't quite work. And, um, and it, it sort of, it flowers into this gigantic conspiracy thriller that is really not explicable. Doesn't make sense in its own terms. Right. But us is fantastic in some ways, a more impressive movie than get out, which is, which is almost perfect. But us, with these amazing performances and horror scenes and stuff like that. And so then I was really disappointed in Nope because I thought having seen us after Nope, that Nope was a regression. Like it wasn't, you know, he hadn't, he hadn't built on, on the fantastic imaginative qualities of, of us. I love the fact that he's doing genre movies. Like that's what he's starting with. He's starting with like a horror genre and then trying to build on that. I think that's really great. I have a friend who, refuses to uh, just for, i don't know if it's refuses but uh, he just just doesn't know anybody's name so he that <laughs> i saw that note that was directed by uh, key and peel <laughs> and, and i do remember once years ago he said uh uh, uh i saw that uh manchurian candidate movie boy you know murder she wrote's in that <laughs> like <laughs> that's, that's great yeah murder she wrote in that movie uh she's she's scary in that movie and key and peel did a, that that's a great movie by key and peel like the no, godfather sorry, was forget. awesome in taxi driver <laughs> yeah yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> anyway um so i but it, inter- one thing i can recommend to people and it'll probably be on you know vod or whatever pretty soon very much in the mold. It's not in the mold of Get Out, but it was. It's a four million or five million dollar movie made by a TV comedian, uh, TV comedian comic actor named B.J. Novak. It's called Vengeance, and it was produced by Jason Blum, the guy who produced Get Out, and and basically has decided to work with every uh, TV person who wants to make a scare, you know, a, 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 a thriller yeah. or a genre movie. Um, he also produced a fantastic movie in 2015 called the gift, which was written by an actor and written and directed by an actor named Joel Kinnaman that I heartily recommend with Jason Bateman, a really brilliant thriller anyway. But vengeance is about a New York hipster journalist who has a one night stand uh, in Brooklyn with a girl from Texas and then f- gets a phone call that she has suddenly died and that she was in love with him and that the family is demanding his presence at her funeral. And he decides because he's looking for a subject for a podcast to go to her funeral <laughs> and he goes to her funeral and that he is told at the funeral that she was in fact murdered that this was a, and there's a cover up and blah, 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 blah. And he starts living with this family in Texas, this conservative Christian family in Texas. And it is the story of the culture. It's the, it's a culture war story. And what's really interesting about it, this guy, BJ Novak, who wrote and directed and stars in it, who was on the office. And, uh, and interestingly enough is the son of William Novak, who was the great ghost writer. Ghost wrote Leah Coca's autobiography. Oh, right, ghost wrote right. or helped write Natan Sharansky's autobiography was a sort of go-to ghostwriter. Is that it's about how horrible this Brooklyn hipster who would hate these Texans more than you can possibly imagine really is, and how these Texans are kind of more interesting 
and far less predictable than you would think, which sounds condescending, but it really isn't. And the movie has problems and the villain monologizes too much and they're, they're, like there there are weaknesses to it. But I think people who listen to this podcast might find it very interesting. So it's called Vengeance by and, and it's written, directed, and stars BJ Novak. It is in theaters now, but as I say, in any at any minute, it'll probably be. His dad was a ghostwriter. His dad was the ghostwriter. Was like the 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 go to ghostwriter of the nineteen eighties and nineties. So what we do? He would like write from ghostwrite from eight to (laughs) ten, and then he had the The rest of the other guy's day. He had the rest of Lee Iacocca's (laughs) day. He would go to the Chrysler Club eight to ten. Yeah, right. Yeah, man. Everybody's got an angle but us. What yeah, do we do? Where's angle. our angle? Where's our angle? I don't know. I'm not. Uh, I need an angle. Where's my grift? Um, I don't know. Your your grift is handing off psycho psycho psychos whatever. Free. That's not a grift. <laughs> to just poor Tunisian customs. What officials. do you mean poor Tunisian customs? He's probably like had a great great you know afternoon. He's probably been bribed a lot to get on the fast pass line to Marseille. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know what's great about Marseille? I've never been to Marseille, but I will say two things are great about Marseille. There's a great sequence about Marseille in the French connection. Oh, yeah. Which then when you actually watch the movie seems to have almost no connection to what you're seeing in Brooklyn, but is a great scene. And then the other is this great trilogy of movies made in the 30s by a French director named... Uh, Marcel Pagnol. My, my, Marcel Pagnol called right. Fanny Marius and Cesar, which is about, which is like the story of Brandy, you're a fine girl, which we talked about on the last podcast almost. Anyway, Joni, you got to go. I do. Fanny Marius and Cesar, watch them. Marseille bar, woman, pregnant, old guy, marries the old guy. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. And we'll, we'll circle back to your journalist friend oh, in Thailand yeah. on another oh, yeah. oh, right. <laughs> That's not going okay. anywhere. That All may right. just be a special premium glob we charge for. <laughs> All right. See you guys. See you guys. Excellent. All right. Thanks, guys. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say, I love you. All that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Are never out of date Hearts full of Passion, jealousy, and hate. I do. Is it? I do. It's it's it, I, I it's it's the only real fan I have. Um, is it too loud? Can you pick it up on the audio? When it when it when it breaks, I have to do fan service.
Ricochet. Join the conversation.